Before we get started, a couple of things. Uh, did want you to know that Mr. Howard will be in the foyer as is customary when they have a chance to visit with us. And so if you would like to contribute to the Gideon ministry, we'd invite you to do so uh, with him at that time. Um, also, just wanted to encourage you, if, if you have some time this Wednesday, to join with the group who will be serving uh, some of the needy in our community. Um, we need 15 people, and I, whenever we uh, volunteered to do this, I thought, surely 300 people, we'll get 15. But we need a few more, and so would encourage you to consider that opportunity. I've been a part of what these folks do and uh, have seen firsthand their love for people and their desire to feed them both to fill their stomach, but also their commitment to teaching them the truth of God's Word. Uh, and they do a really good job of that. So if you have the time, would encourage you uh, to join us. I want you to think about, if you will, as we get started here this morning, a, a time where you might have found yourself in a precarious situation. Like maybe when you saw the movie uh, Laters of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones fell through that hole and ended up in that pit of snakes. Remember that? He was face to face with the cobra. That would be a precarious situation. I was telling my son Grant about that recently, and he said, Yeah, Dad, I know. Indiana Jones hates snakes. (laughs) I said, Yeah, he does, and so does your daddy. I still remember my closest encounter with a snake was when I was out hunting with some guys uh, out in Paducah, Texas, at my granddad's farm. And uh, it was usually a warm winter day, quail season, and we were walking through a, a patch of trees. And when we first entered into this grove of trees, we were kind of startled when there was a little diamondback rattlesnake in front of us. It was real small, so we shot it, took care of it, didn't think about it, moved on. Kept on walking and uh, came up to what was uh, an old farmhouse that had mostly fallen down by that time. And as I was walking along, I heard what sounded at first like a cubby of quail. But instinctively, I knew that didn't sound quite right. (laughs) So I froze. And when I turned and looked over, about eight feet away from me on what used to be the front porch of this old farmhouse was the biggest rattlesnake I have ever seen in my life. And not only that, you think I'm making this up, I promise you, I still see it in my mind's eye. He was standing about this high, (laughs) looking straight at me. And all I could do was I had my gun down here, shoot and run. And so that's what I did. And I didn't even think twice about it, right? Well, I get back to the truck where everybody's at. My granddad pulls up not five minutes later, and we explained everything to him in great detail. And he looked at me and he said, well, Todd, let's go get those rattlers. (laughs) I thought, you're crazy. (laughs) I am not going back in there. But he made me go because we had to get those rattles off of that rattlesnake. And when we did, what, he, what we found was the biggest rattlesnake my granddad had ever seen on his land. It was over six feet long. It was huge. So when I say this tall, I wasn't kidding. <laughs> that was a precarious situation. <laughs> when I think about that story, I had nightmares for days. It still gives me the weebie-jeebies. <laughs> In our study of Second Peter, we find that the early Christians were also in a precarious situation. They, too, were staring face-to-face with a very dangerous threat. And the reason I believe this is important for us to look at it, 
is because I believe this threat that they faced is alive and well today. Because of that fact, I believe we need to have a close examination of the heart of the issue that Peter reveals to us in his letter so that we are not too easily carried away by the deception of this same danger in our society today. Before we look at our passage this morning, let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, probably not unlike um, my naivety that day, um, we ignore some of the warning signs of danger ahead. And the next thing you know, we're face to face with it, and uh, we're in a precarious situation. In more ways than one, Father, I believe that we face that reality today, that we too are face to face with a very dangerous threat to your name, to your mission, to your church, and ultimately to us as your people. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Give us the courage not to ignore the warning signs. Give us the wisdom to see beyond the veil of deception. And give us the truth that we need to be girded in so that we may stand strong in the faith and in faithful service to you. This is our prayer, Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to tell you up front, that what we'll look at this morning is a difficult passage of Scripture. As you'll see, Peter does not mince words as he describes the true character of the deceptive men and women who have begun to infiltrate the church. And because of that, in order to help us not get lost in some of the difficulty of what we'll look at, I want to begin with the end in mind. I want to give you the three things that I want to make sure you walk away with before we ever get started. First, as we will see in Peter's description, we need to examine the life of those who claim to be Christians. You see, there are certain characteristics of those who do not stand in the truth, and we need to know what those are. Because how we live says a whole lot about what we truly believe. So we need to examine the lives of of those who make that claim. But one of the main reasons Peter's writing this letter is because there were those who were being carried away by the influence of false teachers. Therefore, it's absolutely necessary for us to examine our own heart in order to make sure that we're not drifting into the deception of their teaching, however small or subtle that compromise may be. So examine their life, examine our heart, and then finally, examine the truth. Take everything you see and hear from those who speak in the name of Christ and let it pass through the filter of God's Word. What is consistent with what is revealed in Scripture, hang on to that. And what is not, let it go. Examine their life. Examine your heart and examine the truth. That's where we're going. So keep that in mind as we move forward. If you will, go ahead and turn to Second Peter, if you're not already there, Second Peter chapter 2. And if you will, begin reading with me. I'm going to start in the second half of verse 10 where we left off last. Peter, describing those false teachers, says, 
daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. Peter begins by describing these self-teachers as daring and self-willed. The NIV says that they're bold and arrogant. The Net Bible says that they're brazen and insolent. The King James says presumptuous and self-willed. I think you get the idea. What Peter is doing here is using a a literary technique of of taking adjectives and uh, combining them together to, to compound the significance of what he wants them to hear. Because these false teachers are not just prideful. As Peter says, there is an arrogant audacity. And the example he gives us is the audacity to insult angels. And specifically, as we'll look at our passage, demonic angels. And he says that when they do, they do not tremble. In other words, they have no fear. Let me ask you here. Do you insult something if there's a concern on your part that it may come back to bite you? (laughs) We don't do that, do we? We might take a stick and with a little helpless bunny rabbit poke it and give it trouble. And we do that because there's no fear that that thing's going to give us any serious harm. But would you take that same stick and go up to a grizzly bear and start poking it? No, you wouldn't. You see, the absence of fear assumes superiority. That's why the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Being in a right relationship with God begins with understanding who is superior. He is God, and I am not. It's a great place to begin. But these false teachers were insulting angels without any fear. This absence of fear wrongly assumes a position of superior authority peter says in verse 11 this is foolish because even the angels who are much stronger and more powerful than any man they don't even dare to do that as we read this we we hear what peter's saying but but it kind of leaves us hanging doesn't it (laughs) what exactly is he talking about is there a specific thing that he is is referencing Well, I think we do get some help from that in a companion letter written, the letter of Jude. Uh, If you would, go ahead and turn there. Jude is the the last one before Revelation. So go to the book of Revelation and turn left, and you're going to find Jude. One chapter. Jude apparently writing to either about the same or a very similar group as Peter is addressing gives us some additional information that I think we'll find helpful. If you will, look at Jude, verse 8. says, In the same manner, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. And here's the specific example, verse 9. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not, de- de- excuse me, did not dare pronounce against him 
a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men, speaking of the false teachers, revile things which they do not understand. So now we have a specific example. Michael, the archangel, is arguing with Satan about the body or really ultimately the eternal destiny of Moses. Now, I don't want us to get too confused with this example and get lost in the details so that we miss the main point. But suffice it to say, Satan knows that Moses has committed murder, right? We know that from the testimony of his life in Scripture. And so he's looking at this body that has died and he says, it's mine. The archangel Michael knows differently because he serves the living God who knows the heart of Moses and the faith and forgiveness given to him. Instead of telling the devil what an idiot he is, instead of assuming a a position of authority and declaring a judgment on Satan that's only God's to give, what does he say? He says, the Lord rebuke you. The point here is that the archangel Michael knew his place. He was a servant of the king. His fear of the Lord prevented him from assuming a position of authority and pronouncing a judgment that was not his to give. But these false teachers, they rush in where angels who are far superior to them in knowledge and strength are even unwilling to go. So there's a good question as we think through this together. How do these false teachers insult the angels? Well, I think one of the ways they insult the angels, and specifically the demonic angels, is they refuse to take sin seriously. Perhaps they've been rebuked for their immoral lifestyle that's been made very clear in our passage. Or or maybe they have been um, questioned about some of the deceitful doctrines that they're teaching. But just as the book of Proverbs reminds us, it says that fools mock sin. It also says that their way seems right in their own eyes. And they ignore the counsel of the godly. Foolish, false teachers and those who follow them justify their sinful choices because they convince others that it's just not that big of a deal. I'm not doing anything that I don't want to do. I control my own decisions, they'll tell you. Nobody tells me what to do. In their arrogance, they hugely underestimate the power of sin. And they mock Satan's ability to control their lives. I believe this is one of the ways that they insult the angels and assume that they're bigger and stronger. It reminds me of a friend that I had, have known for many years. He's older now. And early in his life, he, he struggled with alcoholism. He explained to me that the greatest defeats in his battle against the bottle came when he believed that he had the power to control his addiction. As soon as he said, I've risen above the power of this addiction, he fell right back in to the pattern of abuse. But today, if you talk to my friend, he'll tell you that he's an alcoholic who is 35 years sober. He has found victory in his addiction by admitting his vulnerability to defeat. He's found strength 
in his humility. In a similar way, those who mock the power of sin are the ones who are most easily controlled by it. To the point that Peter says in verse 12, they become like unreasoning animals destined for destruction. It's a strong statement that Peter is making because he's teaching us that those who are controlled by sinful desires and choices lose their human distinction. What separates you and I from the animal kingdom is our ability to make rational decisions, to consider consequences, to weigh our options, and then in the end to make an informed moral choice. These false teachers forfeit that privilege and simply make decisions on instinct. If it feels good, do it. But that's not a rational choice. That's a decision made on impulse. And when we fall into this trap, we're no longer using reason. We're just following our appetite. And that's no different than the animals. And as you've seen in your own family and as we have explained to our boys when they were old enough to understand, son, when you make bad choices, bad things happen. That seems to be what Peter says in verse 13. In arrogance... These false teachers suffer wrong, he says, as the wages of doing wrong. In other words, they get what they paid for. In the end, they are caught in the web of lies that they've woven. As Moses writes in Numbers thirty-two twenty-three, he says, But if you will not obey, you have sinned against the Lord. And be sure, listen to this, your sin will find you out. It will. Sin always creates a path that always leads to destruction. But even beyond their audacious arrogance, these false teachers are also addicted to sensuality. Look at Second Peter again, chapter 2, verse 13. It says this, They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression from a dumb donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrain the madness of the prophet. (laughs) Let me start by making sure we understand this idea of sensuality. By definition, sensuality is the gratification of the senses or the indulgence of the appetite. So although the word includes a sexual connotation, that it is in no way limited to that context. Peter supports this idea because in verse 13, he uses the word that we translate as pleasure. They count it pleasure, he says, to revel in the daytime. The word we translate pleasure comes from the Greek word hedony, from which we get the word hedonist. A hedonist is one who lives in a persistent pursuit of pleasure, especially a pleasure of the senses. In other words, it's the conviction that when something feels right, then it just can't be wrong. 
And the problem is, these false teachers have begun to take this hedonistic conviction into the context of the local church. I think the ESV translation of this makes it a little bit easier to understand. In the NASB, it talks about they carouse with you. Listen to what the ESV says. It says, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. We don't have any further details, again, from Peter. He kind of leaves us hanging, but Jude comes to the rescue again. So turn, if you will, to Jude chapter, or chapter 1, it's only chapter, verse 12. Jude, verse 12. says, these men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. The love feast is, is a biblical term used to describe the church's fellowship around the Lord's table. I believe this is the feast that Peter is describing in his letter. The point that he is making is that these false teachers live segregated lives. They party during the week and show up for church every single Sunday. They do what feels good Monday through Saturday, and then they do what looks good on Sunday. But even their motivation for church attendance is corrupted. Peter says that they're not there to worship God. The only reason they're there is to satisfy themselves. He says specifically that they prey upon the weak, having eyes full of adultery. Literally, this reads, having eyes full of an adulteress. In other words, everyone is a potential victim to fulfill their selfish appetites. They're just looking to catch someone in a weak moment. And you know what? The church is a great place to do that. Because we're called to to carry one another's burdens. But these selfish impostors give the appearance of wanting to help you. But all the while, they're looking for just the right opportunity to take advantage of you. Instead of walking in humble obedience to the Lord, Peter says, they go the way of Balaam in disobedience. The story of Balaam would have been familiar to the people who received Peter's letter. It's found in Numbers chapter 22. It describes a prophet of God who, like the false teachers, arrogantly thought he could succeed in his plan to oppose God's will. Balaam apparently did what God asked of him for a while, but his heart was never in it. We know this because... When he was petitioned by a a pagan king to curse Israel, he forfeited his responsibility to follow God in pursuit of financial gain. In other words, he accepted the bribe. Balaam gets on his donkey to, to meet with this pagan king to carry out the evil act. And on the way, an angel of the Lord stood in his path to prevent him from carrying out that plan. Seeing the angel, the donkey he was riding on wouldn't move. It just stopped. So Balaam gets off of the donkey, takes the sticks, and beats the donkey into submission until he moves again. And then once again, the angel shows up, donkey stops, Balaam gets off, does the same thing three times over. Until the point where the donkey speaks to him in an audible voice and essentially says, Why are you hitting me? Do you not see the angel? 
Balaam, like these false teachers, was ignoring the warning that even a dumb animal could see. I believe, as Peter writes, he hopes to remind us as well, don't ignore the warning signs. Look for signs of audacious arrogance and the pursuit of personal pleasure. If that's the pattern of someone's life, they may be living under the influence of a false teacher. But let's not make the mistake of examining someone else's life without making it a priority of examining our own heart as well. Because here's something that we need to remember. It really is impossible to isolate yourselves from the influence of false teachers. We may try to do that and think that we can, but it's, it's really it's not possible. Even our own society, these imposters have their own TV networks. They write books that we read. They lead crusades. They fill football stadiums full of people who listen to their message. Their influence is unavoidable in our society. That's why it's important for us to examine our own heart to make sure that we are not being carried away by their compromise. For example, when you look at your own life, do you see a pattern of humble discernment or of arrogant independence? I think one of the best ways to answer this question is to see if you are receptive to godly counsel. More specifically, do you seek godly counsel? When you have an important decision to make or you're struggling with an important issue in your life, do you invite godly people to speak truth into your life? Humble humble discernment understands that there is wisdom and a multitude of counselors. And they're quick to listen to the input of those who are walking with Christ. They avoid the sense of superiority that suggests that I don't need anyone else's help. Instead, they invite godly counsel and they listen very carefully. And once they've received good counsel, those who have humble discernment will always take it to the Lord in prayer. In fact, they precede everything they do in prayer. Because when we humbly follow the example of Jesus, like him, we desire to do nothing on our own accord. Remember, not my will, Father, but but your will be done. And we accept the fact that very often this kind of discernment takes time. So choosing not to be controlled by arrogance means that you're willing to wait upon the Lord, however long that takes. The Scripture says that a patient man has great understanding. He looks expectantly for how God might confirm his direction in his life or or redirect his plans and purposes for his life. Either way, he is like moldable clay in the hands of the potter. His heart's desire is to do what most honors the Lord, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. This pattern of humble obedience is evidence that we're not being carried away by those who make decisions out of arrogant pride. So let me encourage you. Examine your heart and see if that's the pattern of your life so that you'll know that you're not being carried away by selfish independence from the body of Christ. Because those who drift away from the fellowship of believers are actually being carried away 
by the deception of false teachers. Another important way for us to examine our heart is to consider the images that pass through our eyes. And Peter said that the false teachers were consumed with sinful thoughts because of the coveting that that filled their eyes. He speaks specifically of an adulteress, but I think the coveting was much broader than just that one area. During a Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus gives us a similar warning when he says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Jesus is telling us that what enters our eyes ultimately fills our heart. Or to put it another way, the focus of our eyes becomes the focus of our life. We focus on the perfect family, perfect grades, perfect job. I found that as you grow and become more mature in your life and faith, you realize that some of those perfection images are just mirages, like in the desert. Really, what we need to do is to focus on what Scripture tells us to focus on. Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. His perfection, not our own. That's why Paul writes to the Ephesians, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. The focus of our eyes becomes the focus of our life. Like Job, we should make a covenant with our eyes so that coveting something or someone else is never our consuming thought. And it's my conviction that contentment is the antidote to coveting. When you're happy with where you're at, you're not consumed with looking around for something else or someone else who might be better. So examine your heart. If your eyes are filled with coveting, then there's a good chance that you're being carried away. Invite the counsel of others. Go before the Lord in prayer, asking for contentment in whatever circumstances you may be in. Learn to live in humble dependence upon the promise that you can do all things through Christ in His perfection who lives in you. Examine your heart. The false teachers were hedonists. Life was all about the pursuit of personal pleasure. The influence of that mindset, I think we would all uh, refuse to deny the fact that it exists all around us, doesn't it? So we need to examine our heart to see if there's anything in our life that would suggest that we've fallen into that compromise, however subtle it may be. Let me close with this. Carrie asked me a great question this week as we were talking about this passage. He said, these people seem so blatantly bad. How did they not see them in the early church? And even more, how do we not see them today? And he's right. You read this description and you say to yourself, I think I could spot these guys a mile away. But very often we don't. They wouldn't be dangerous if that was the case. Like the snake I didn't see hunting that day. False teachers are camouflaged to blend in with their environment. The reason that Peter describes them and it seems so blatant to us is because he is uncovering that facade to reveal their true character. 
their character qualities are often hid by what the Bible calls a form of godliness. And it is a camouflage that can be hidden with inside even our church. Their lies become acceptable because they're laced with truth. Not unlike those dog food hors d'oeuvres I talked about a couple of weeks ago. It looks good on the outside because of all those delicious delicacies that are covering up the filthiness that lies underneath. For that same reason, we need to make sure that we are examining the truth. Be a Berean. These are the saints who Luke spoke about in Acts chapter 17. This is what he says. He says, now these, speaking about the Bereans, were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scripture daily to see whether these things were so. As we listen to those who claim to be Christian, we should be doing the same thing. Don't be carried away by an entertaining service or a motivational speech without noticing if it's void of scriptural truth. People can be very sincere about their devotion and yet still be sincerely wrong. Just this past week, we had some visitors that came to our house. Um, I wasn't there at the time. Terry answered the door and uh, they were... uh, Uh, I don't know what you would call, they were on mission with the Jehovah's Witness Church. Terry did a great job of listening to their spiel. We're so glad to hear that. We're Christians too. We're so glad that you are as well. Thank you for being so kind and letting us come to your house. And then they left and went to the next one. Terry said, I didn't know how to respond. I I was somewhat dumbfounded by their reaction.
Father, help us to encourage each other as a body of believers towards love and good deeds so that there is strength in the numbers that you give us. Because it says that a cord of three strands is not easily broken. We know that that truth is intended to communicate to us that we are intended to live in community with each other. There is strength in that bond. May we be faithful to you. Father, may we be faithful to you, serving you with all of our heart, mind, and our strength. Pray this for